I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. This is Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis, and we talk about all things mental health, wellness, self-care. And a big part of that is talking about the things that have contributed to what perhaps might be religious trauma in your life. Or maybe you're someone who has been religious and you are deconstructing from Christianity in particular, and you're navigating what that means for you. And so what I want to do today is I'm here in the studio with Reverend Lizzie, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself here in a second. We're going to talk about some ways that Puritanism in particular has influenced Western culture in ways that are not so great to your mental health. (laughs) To put it mildly. (laughs) To put it mildly. So whether you're someone who is deconstructing and you are, this will be helpful on your deconstructing journey when figuring out what to keep and what to throw out, whether you are someone who is of the Christian faith and you want to think critically about some of the cultural messages that you've gotten, or maybe you're someone who is not a Christian at all, and you're not interested at all in religion or Christianity in particular, this is also for you. Because again, why would you want to hang on to beliefs that hurt your mental health that originated from a religion that you don't even want to be a part, right? So this is a podcast episode for everyone. And with that, Reverend Lizzie, will you introduce yourself, please? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was totally geeking out. I'm a sentient ball of stardust in the flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, friends. I'm Lizzie. I use she, her pronouns. You can call me Reverend Lizzie, Father Lizzie, or just Lizzie. And I'm an Episcopal priest. And if you've never heard of the Episcopal Church... We're very old, actually. We've been around since the Reformation. Basically, we trace our roots back to the Church of England. We are a a denomination that is pretty uniquely both Catholic and Protestant. So if you've ever been to Catholic Mass, you would find an Episcopal service to be almost word for word the same. We have some distinctions in our history that make us distinctly Protestant. And of course, as you are hearing my very feminine voice, we ordain women and ordain queer women, which I am. And so I uh, grew up in the Southeast. I am now rooted in Austin, Texas, where I'm the founding planter of Jubilee Episcopal Church. And as the planter, I got to pick the name. So I think we'll get into why Jubilee matters as this conversation unfolds. But I just want to say, first of all, I'm so delighted to be here. And second of all, like I am going to speak as a priest. It would be inauthentic for me to try Try and talk about anything without it being of and about God for me. And as I understand God through Christian theology and through my experience as a priest, but I offer that out of my authenticity and my experience and expression and invite anyone listening to to take or leave what is useful to you. And I hope that in a 
a country where Christian hegemony and Christian nationalism is so terrifyingly present and so many places that I think a lot of folks, because I have theological training, I don't necessarily see people seeing the roots of those things, even in practices and places that are not explicitly Christian. I hope in me speaking authentically out of my experience and faith that it is liberatory for anyone listening. And I'm not here trying to convert anybody. So that's literally not my goal. So. <laughs> It's not mine either. In fact, people are sometimes surprised when they find that although I talk about being deconstructed from evangelicalism, I still very much practice a Christian faith and actually pretty devout in it. So I like to think that I'd left behind most of the cultural baggage that I don't believe to be biblical anyways, but I do my best to create a safe place for anyone and everyone that wants to come and learn about mental health from me. And so certainly don't think that I can promise to be safe for everybody's personal experience, but know that this is not a place that I don't think this is going to make your religious trauma worse. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I hope not. Honestly, like I genuinely hope to offer uh, some healing and some liberation if that if that is available and possible for you. you know? <laughs> well, I love what we're going to talk about because we're going to talk about something that is, I think, going to be liberating for both people of the Christian faith and people who are not of the Christian faith. Because it really is this way that the Bible got used to say some things that are really hurtful and harmful that like turns out like if we really look at who we believe the Christian God to be between you and I, like we don't believe he's saying those things anyways, right? So regardless of if you believe or not, I think everyone can benefit from taking a couple of concepts we're going to talk about and just getting rid of them. And then there's one concept, biblical concept we are going to talk about that I think is missing from a lot of faith communities. And I would love to loan out to anybody who is not a part of the Christian faith community, but is on their own journey of finding finding meaning. So let's get into it, Father Lizzie. We're going to start with the famous phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. Do you want to kick us off? Because you know that I can info dump about it. I mean, I'm so ready for you to info dump. I just, I love to blow people's minds by saying this isn't anywhere in scripture. And like, you know, the Bible's real long, real dense. It is at youngest 2,000 years old and at oldest 5,000 years old. And that's just when it was written down from an oral tradition that had been passed down. So you can find almost anything in the Bible. I mean, like, this is the thing that I just to what you were saying, of like scriptural concepts, like part of what's challenging about like faith in the public square is like to engage a sacred text meaningfully, you have to understand how complicated it is, but also be willing to like enter into the fray of like studying that scripture and hearing God speak to you. But this phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, nowhere in that giant 2000 plus page Bible. It's such an easy one to take because like there are some problematic things said in the Bible. For sure. <laughs> that like we have to wrestle with and figure out what the hell to do with. And it's just like kind of a breath of fresh air when you're like, this one isn't even in the Bible. No, not ours. <laughs> <laughs> not ours. <laughs> you know, I will definitely, it was certainly one of our own. Mm. Oh, for sure. I mean. Where the phrase came from. But interestingly enough, the phrase didn't even originate to mean what it gets mean meant today. Like it's always meant today to shame someone who is being messy, who isn't clean enough, who, you know, like I get this sometimes on my videos where I talk about having a messy home or having, you know, mental health issues that make it difficult to get your dishes done. And every once in a while, it doesn't happen as much anymore because I think I've shamed these people out of my comment section, but they'll come <laughs> in and they'll say, well, cleanliness is next to godliness. And the really shaming thing that it's not saying, but it is saying is that being messy is a sin. Hmm. 
Having dirty dishes is a moral failing before God. Which is just wild on so many levels because, I mean, to me, to start at the root of this is like, is the goal to be God or is the goal to be disciples of God, to be followers of God, right? Because there's lots of aspects of godliness, omniscience, meaning like all knowledge, omnipresence, (laughs) I'm never going to have. And I can aspire. I can aspire to have those things. Sure. And I am setting myself up for failure and or setting myself up to be a controlling, cruel, very unhappy person. And so, I mean, even just the phrase itself, godliness, cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm like, I don't know if godliness is the goal, my friends. I mean, I, you know, holiness for sure, but I'm not trying to be God. And there are so many things like sin is, you know, I find it to be very liberatory to believe in sin. And I think this is helpful to like get at right at the beginning, because I think sometimes people hear sin and they're like, oh, it's me being dirty or me being bad or me, you know, it's something that is essential to my character that makes me unworthy of love, dignity, respect or belonging. And I remember actually when I was in seminary being very weighed down with the fact that I was a sinner and I was going to be a priest because I was like, oh, my God, like I am not worthy of this. And I had a, a priest say to me, Lizzie, you're really not special for being a sinner, sweetheart. Like, <laughs> Sin is just a condition of being a person in a world that is imperfect, in a world where we can make the most ethical, pure, moral choices possible and available to us, and people are still suffering. And I don't think having dirty dishes is the root of that evil. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash STRUGGLE, promo code STRUGGLE. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. 
You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Well, and I'll say this, like, you know, I think that that's an interesting concept to even begin with, because, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about growing up in church and hearing that you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and they find that very shaming. They find that, you know, analogous to you're wrong, you're dirty, you're bad, you are of your own self, completely unlovable. And I really sympathize with how that must have felt. And I don't have any necessarily like answers or anything to that, except to say that I find it interesting. And I think one of the reasons why my Christian faith has been such a comfort to me is because I came to the table thinking I was unworthy. You know, like I was in rehab. I had really fucked up my life in 16 short years. Like in record time, I had fucked everything up. I was in a lot of pain. I could not seem to do anything. I just, I mistreated people that I really cared about. And I had done things that I was really ashamed of. And I felt broken and unworthy. But I thought that I was unique in that right? Like I thought I was just uniquely broken and unworthy and everybody else, you know, wasn't. And so when I heard everyone's a sinner, that sin is just something you have because the world is broken. To me, that was such a great comfort because it went, oh, I'm not bad. I'm just human. Like this wasn't something that like I was so much worse than everyone else that I just couldn't succeed in life. This wasn't like I'm so uniquely unlovable. It was like, oh, you mean all humans are broken? Like all humans are selfish? Like all humans have made choices to put themselves over other people in a way that is deeply shameful. That to me was so liberating because I already thought I was a piece of shit. So like the message of people would try to come to me and say, no, Casey, you're not broken. You're not unworthy. You are worthy of love. And I know people were trying to be loving. They thought that that would combat that feeling of being broken and unworthy, but it never ever like fixed that or penetrated that because I just always felt like that's a lie. Yeah, it feels deceptive. It feels deceptive to your experience and your own like internal script. Yeah. And so when someone said, or when I understood from, you know, like my own reading of the Bible, you know, me saying like, I'm broken and unworthy of love. And the response to that being, well, yeah, <laughs> but everybody is. And God knows that. And that has never been a barrier to him loving you. And if he loves you, that love in and of itself makes you worthy. And that was my experience with the Christian faith. And it's sometimes, I mean, I like to share that because I think sometimes it maybe lends some understanding on, you know, if you have an, an understanding of the Christian faith and I've had people be like, I don't even see how you could ever be Christian. And it's like, well, that, that's how I came to it, right? I also came to it like reading the New Testament in rehab, not growing up in church being told to burn my Harry Potter books. So like very different entry, right? right. <laughs> um, so that being said... My experience was that God is anti-shame. Yes. 
And so cleanliness is next to godliness is such a shaming principle, like this idea that, well, if you just feel bad enough about your things you'll do, you'll you'll do different. So if you would, I would love to info dump on you on what I have discovered. I am so ready. I'm so ready for it. So where did the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness come from? Well, friends, thank you for asking. It came from a sermon by John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism, which is another branch of Protestant Christianity, in 1791. Right? He delivered a sermon that was called On Dress. Okay. And what the sermon was about was about how we dress. Specifically, it was about this scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I'm going to read the New King James Version. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, I think this is really interesting off the bat, right? Because it's like, whoa, what? Cleanliness. Okay, what does this have to do? So that's what he wanted to talk about. So Wesley wants to give a sermon about how you should not focus on an external dressing of yourself in a way that's about putting on And in this context, fine apparel is expensive apparel, okay? We're talking about this idea that if you put on the Dior and the Gucci and the this and the that, like, that's what makes you, you know, worthy and acceptable and like you have it all together, right? Like I am, and we see this in the Christian church, which is, (laughs) it's not always Gucci, but it's like the pastor's wife that looks all put together, right? And we kind of all look the same. There's like a vibe about us that all looks the same, right? Or you think like the Duggar family where it's like, yes, we wear the long skirts and we wear our hair Yes, the dress long, code. Right? Mm-hmm. There's like a dress code, whether formal or informal, that is supposed to signify your godliness. Yeah. And signify your godliness by signifying something about what God thinks about your body. Sorry, I don't mean yes. to interrupt. No, that I, was great. I think that's a significant, yeah. <laughs> so he's specifically talking in his context to Hey, the whole like showing up to church wearing expensive clothing to show off how you must be more liked and favored by God because look at all of the ways he's blessed you and let me express that like knock that off. That's not how a Christian should behave. It's about who you are on the inside, right? So that's a great point to make. And what's funny is I think that that's close to the point that I make in my content about like, it's not about what the outside looks like. It's about, you know, the way that you treat other people. But he was afraid, or not afraid, but like as anything, when we make points, he had a disclaimer that he wanted to make. Because often when we're talking to someone, well, we don't want them to take it this way. And the disclaimer that he wanted to use is that when I say, don't focus so much on your appearance, what I'm not saying is don't take care of your body. When I say dressing up the outside to look, you know, a certain way is not holiness, I don't mean that it's somehow holy to neglect your appearance, right? So what he says is, but before we enter on the subject, let it be observed that slovenliness is no part of religion, that neither is this nor any text of scripture, that neither this nor any text of scripture condemns neatness of apparel. Certainly, this is a duty, not a sin. Cleanliness is indeed next to godliness. 
So what Wesley meant was, I'm going to talk to you about how you shouldn't be putting so much focus on your appearance and the way your body looks. You should be focusing on the heart. But I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't shower. I'm not saying that you'll then be holier if you don't shower. Like, don't take this I have to prove myself and just put it in a different slot of like, well, then I just won't shower. So now the dirtiest person who shows up to church must be the holiest. Like, And slovenliness in this context, He's not talking about like laziness. He's like sloppiness. So I'm not saying don't shower and purposefully put on, you know, messy clothes because that's somehow holy. Right. Like you're more spiritual than physical or something. Right. Like it's your duty to care for your body and to put on clothes that, you know, whatever. So first of all, point number one, cleanliness in this context did not mean like a clean home. It meant hygiene. He was literally just trying to say, I'm not saying don't be hygienic. So chapter two of this, that's really interesting, is that that didn't even like blow up this face. Like you and I don't know this phrase because of John Wesley, right? My marble statue with moving lips, my dude. (laughs) We know this phrase because the Ivory Soap Company then took the phrase from Wesley's sermon and used it in a marketing campaign. To sell Christianity sells. Ugh. Well, what's funny is that soap companies specifically marketed their products in religious terms for that reason. Like they could go purity, cleanliness. I mean, up until the 1870s, people just used hot water to bathe. So remember, the whole thing about marketing is you have to give people a problem before you can give them a solution. So they had to basically tell you that being dirty was bad and wrong and shameful and sinful. And so buy our soap because cleanliness is next to godliness. So in the 1880s, ivory soap used cleanliness is next to godliness as a marketing campaign. And that's why your grandmother shames you. Oh my gosh. There's just like so much to unpack with that. I mean, what I value about what John Wesley was trying to do there, and he does in other places too, and I think is deeply true of scripture and deeply true of God, is that God does care about the mundane realities of our bodily life. And it is not I think sometimes in lots of religious expressions and experiences, but I can only really speak from my experience. So I have seen in Christianity sort of what I could see John Wesley trying to combat there is this like, well, I'm a spiritual being. And therefore, what is on my body does not matter to me. And or what is on my body must reflect my deep spiritual wisdom or piety or devotion. And you can see places in scripture where that is referenced. I think the Apostle Paul is often misinterpreted and uh, quoted to talk about, you know, better to marry than to burn comes to mind, right? Like he's sort of talking about like how you have to, to spiritually transcend your bodily needs. But the reality of the scope of scripture, and I think certainly of God's provision and care that we see in the Old Testament or the Torah, the Tanakh rather, but but specifically in Torah, is that God is is cares about the intimate details of our life and of our bodily reality, not because God wants to shame us, but because God created us in God's own image out of desire and joy. And there is no dimension of our life that is too small for God to care about. And that is in some ways terrifying, right? Like the immense creator of the universe knows how many, you know, dirty mugs I have in my dishwasher downstairs. (laughs) But 
nor is she shaming me for that, right? And instead, like a lot of the laws and the practices around bodily care and hygiene, which we find in the book of Leviticus, which is where my church name Jubilee comes from, they're not about shaming. They are about the practicality of how do we care for ourselves knowing that we are not only our own. And that part of what I think hygiene is, is it's personal care, but it's personal care also knowing that, that we are interconnected with each other. Like no decision for ourselves is ever only for ourselves because we don't exist in a vacuum. And in Christianity, we talk about being the body of Christ, body meaning like the corporate, the group, but that is embodied in our bodies. And so God's care for our bodies in hygiene and care and cleanliness is never, ever about shame. It's about community and connection. And I think that is a sort of unlocking key for me when I think about the popularity of this phrase. I'm curious what, I know you've done a lot of like deconstructing around this. So like, how have you thought about godliness or holiness or pursuing a spiritual life and this like incredible work you do around liberating people from shame and cleanliness? Well, it's interesting because when I first started, I actually got an email from a pastor and he said, you know, I really, I'm so drawn to your work and it makes sense to me on like a guttural level, like an instinctual level, but I'm having trouble contending with like passages in the Bible about laziness. Like how do I talk to my congregation about like caritas or morally neutral while contending with, you know, scripture about laziness and things like that. And so one of the things that I think is such a huge shift for me is especially in things that talk about the body is looking at there are people that will position what God says about those things as commands, God commands versus God cares. And I think that when we see this idea of, you know, God commands that you wash. And if you don't, you're wrong, you're bad, you're sinning, you're like, how dare you? He's God. Versus God cares. He wants you to wash not because he made a command and he really cares that he also thinks you deserve a clean and comfortable body. And so when you don't wash, he's not angry, he's not upset. I think that he, like a mother or a father, is like turns his face inward in a sense like worries about you. And not in a pity sense, but in a, he knows what that means. He knows that, that you're going through a hard time. It's hard for me to believe that when you're going through a hard time, that makes it hard for you to shower. He gives a shit about the shower. It's not the shower. It's not like, ugh, not showering, right? Like, I also tended to, like, one of the biggest, the sermon series that I heard when I was converted was the book of Hosea. And the way that the teacher that was teaching that book, he talks about this man who is commanded to marry a sex worker and she marries him for the stability, but like continues to go out and do sex work and continues to do out. And um, and he keeps saying to her, you don't have to do sex work anymore. Like I will do these things. And this, the narrative isn't that she really loves the work. It's the like, I'm not, I don't trust yet that this is stable. And this belief of like, you couldn't possibly really like want to love me and care for me. And so one of the things that the teacher talked about was that it was supposed to be this like metaphor of like when we're frightened and we don't believe that we're loved, that God doesn't come to us with judgment. And the phrase that I'll never forget because it's seared in my brain is he says, he woos us like a lover. It's gentle and it's kind. And it resonated with me because when I was in rehab when I was 16 and I was struggling to get sober and every like I wanted to want to not get high so badly. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to like white knuckle it. I knew that as long as I woke up and wanted to get high, it would only be a matter of time before I would, but I could not make myself stop wanting that. And not in the sense of like, I don't want to do drugs anymore, 
but in like the literal visceral, like nothing sounds like it's going to work. And like, I'm still thinking about cocaine all the time. And if I was offered it, I probably wouldn't be able to say no, just because it is so much more of an elating experience than anything else. And every day I would wake up and I would go sit on this bench and I would look over this freaking cow pasture and watch the sunrise. And I did not believe in God, uh, but I wanted so desperately for there to be a God, because maybe if there was a God that was like all powerful, I think that's my only chance. Because like I have tried to change this thing in me over and over and over, and I do not have the power. And I am doubting that like modern medicine does. And so at this point, I'm really thinking my Hail Mary here is maybe there's a God, right? And every day I did this for like over a year. Every day there was a little bit more of a sense that something or someone was meeting with me. And they didn't say anything. But every day, that feeling of something or someone is meeting me here in my brokenness. And I'm kind of a fuck up. And yet they have nothing to say. They don't need to address any of it. Like truly, like no, don't need to address any of it. And so then I go to church and I hear this and I'm like, oh, okay, wait, that sounds like my story. And and so I always came in with this belief that the God of my understanding was always tender to me in my brokenness, was always happy to see me in my brokenness, like never felt frustrated at me. And so anytime I encountered that like style of Christianity, I was always just like, man, that is not my experience. That's not my experience in personal moments. That's not my experience when I read the New Testament. Like, and every time somebody would want to argue something, I would be like, especially when they would like theology bros, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm familiar. They'd be like, well, you know, because the Bible, you have to do this because the Bible says this. Like, it's very clear. This is what we have to do because the Bible says this. I was so, con- and I'm to this day so confused at people that have debates, whether it's about, you know, abortion or gender roles or, you know, meat or whatever it is, taking parts of the Bible that says, like, it's very clear it says X, Y, Z, and going, like, literally the first thing you learn about Jesus in, like, Sunday school is that the Bible is really clear that you're supposed to stone people that commit adultery. And then Jesus came upon a woman who was about to be stoned and was like, what are y'all doing? And they all said, we're going to stone her because she was caught in adultery. And he was like, and they were like, because the Bible is really clear, right? Like that's a little like, because it's clear, like this is what the commandment says. And he says, all right, well, the first one of you that has never done anything wrong can throw the first stone. And they all just stand there until they all walk away. And I've been always been so confused. Like, how can anyone assert a moral command or superiority based on because this is what the Bible says. When like the whole point was Jesus showed up and was like, yeah, I get that. But anybody like with some compassion and mercy could tell that like maybe we shouldn't do this. Hmm. I am. Casey, as you're talking, I'm struck by several things. And first is just hearkening a little bit back to your naming of Hosea and that really you healed something for me in your narrative of that, because that is one of, I think, the most difficult books of the Bible to engage and to engage as a feminist and to engage as a woman. And and it is, I think, so ripe for misinterpretation. And I just genuinely thank God that preacher was able to draw that story out in such a, a flourishing way and to show like God's wooing of us and love of us. And we have a prayer that we say in the Episcopal Church, and we say it at Jubilee every Sunday that says, it's at the conclusion of our prayers of the people. So in the service, you know, you read a little Bible, you have a sermon, then we have the people pray. 
again, there's sort of a structure to that because we love a structure in the Episcopal Church and then we have communion. But so there's, this is a point in the service that is meant to be, you know, we sort of have a list of things we pray for. We pray for the government. We pray for people in pain. We pray for the oppressed, for refugees, for people. And we pray for specific people who ask me to be on the prayer list so that their names are named in our community. And then there's an open space for people to pray. And at the end of all of that, I sort of knit the prayers together and thread them together with this particular prayer that says, for you are gracious, O lover of souls. And I just love that line because what I hear you naming is just grace. Like the deepest love and gift of God is God's grace. And that is, I think, and there's actually lots of deep theological connections. I've come in today sort of having reread Rowan Williams' essay, The Body's Grace. It's one of my favorites, where he talks about how we are connected to each other through intimacy, but also in community. The deepest truth of that is when we are open to the vulnerability, when we are open to looking foolish in front of each other, and we are open to receiving being perceived. Like we are trusting like that our fucked upness can be held and loved by God and by other people. That is grace. That is God's grace embodied and living among us. And I think to your question that, you know, it's a question I share. I don't think I have a total answer for why. I mean, if I had an answer for why my beloved, and I mean this genuinely, my beloved siblings in Christ can be such jerks. <laughs> like, um, Man, I could marry Christianity and capitalism all over again and monetize that. I don't have an answer. <laughs> but I mean, I think the short answer is sin. The longer I think reconstruction that I find helpful is that I think lots of traditions and, and sort of looking historically have taken a belief in the Bible that it is the sole source of God. But in my tradition, we don't actually believe that. We believe that scripture is the living word of God. And I take that very seriously. I took vows twice because I was ordained as a deacon and a priest before a bishop saying that I believe holy scriptures contain all things necessary for salvation. So I say that as a preface for like, I take the Bible very seriously. I read it every day. It is a profoundly sacred doctrine document to me. It is the living word of God. I encounter God in it. And to contain God within the pages, the cover of a Bible, is to try and control and contain God. Because God is bigger than scripture. And so in the Episcopal Church, we have something called a three-legged stool, which if you sort of visualize that, three legs, if you take one leg out, it collapses. And Wesley does this too. He has the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which I also appreciate. I grew up Catholic and Methodist, so big fan. <laughs> but we believe that scripture is one leg. And then the other leg is reason. John Wesley would add experience, so I do too. So reason and experience, how we think about things, how we research, how we do anthropological cultural studies, how we... There are new discoveries about the Bible literally all the time. It takes kind of centuries for those to sort of... It, the church is a big old institution. It takes a long time to change, which can be frustrating, but is also kind of our superpower is that we don't see urgency as a virtue, even as sometimes there is like an urgent need to respond. We hold, you know, the urgency of trusting God as paramount, but we don't always have to like, we trust that we're in God's time, I guess is a better way to put it. So, but reason and experience. And then the third pillar is tradition. So what has been done before? And I think a lot of times, like I even think about the phrase like trad wife or trad Catholic, like tradition is, is something that I think uh, can be quite disparaged, but the reality is I think with the emergence of like love of cottagecore things and like love of, you know, Jane Austen persists forever. Like I'm cottagecore girly low key. Like we like to know, and I think have a deep craving, a deep desire to know that we're not the first to face these things. And in a post-internet age or like, you know, 
early internet days when everything feels completely unprecedented. I find the study of scripture very liberating because I'll read the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, which are poems saying basically like, screw you, God, I'm so upset. Why did you do this to me? How can there be such suffering in the world? Why are children dying? Why has my child died? I mean, like deep, like the deepest pains you can imagine are in scripture. And it's like, wow, I'm not the first. And I'm not the only one. And I think the temptation for beloved Theobros, and I I do mean beloved, to say, well, this is what the Bible says. Let me neatly package it into something that I can control and exact upon another human being is a fear of grace. It is a fear of vulnerability. And I mean that a fear of connection to each other, because that's terrifying. Being a person around other people is a terrifying thing, actually. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present, when the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. A few weeks ago, my husband's beloved grandfather died, and it's been a really sad time for our whole family. But one of the moments of light in this whole process was shortly after he passed away, I got an email from my mother-in-law, and she had sent all of us a link to his StoryWorth book. I don't know if you're familiar with StoryWorth, but I have a new appreciation for them now that we have a StoryWorth book on my husband's grandfather. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story, long or short, it doesn't matter. And then you get emailed a copy of their response as they're submitted in the course of a year. You'll get to enjoy the retelling of their stories that you already know or be surprised by stories you've never heard before. And after that year of fun, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. I am so grateful to my mother-in-law for doing this with her dad. We love it. Families love StoryWorth. That's why it has more than 25,000 five-star reviews on Trustpilot with millions of stories preserved since they were founded over 10 years ago. So Mother's Day is coming up and I want to give all the moms in your life a unique heartfelt gift that you will cherish for years. Right now, save 10% on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash struggle. That's storyworth.com slash struggle to save $10 on your first purchase. Whether it's Mother's Day, Father's Day, or just because you know that sometimes time is short and you want to capture those memories. It's also messy. Like my experience with the God of the Bible and so many of the stories and so many of the scriptures is that like the one thing that I know is that God is moved by your pain. 
He is moved by pain. He is moved by your yearning. And that to me is like the meta narrative of the New Testament, which is like these people were out, but they yearned. So you know what they're in. These people were not enough, but you know what? God cares about their pain. So fuck it. They're in these people, right? Like it's like over and over and over. Um, and like I'm always sort like the, the psalm that has always kind of been at the center of the mission of my whole platform is God's talking about one of his prophets, like somebody that he sends in his name. And he says, I'm going to like butcher it because I don't, it's been a while since I've like laid my eyes on the actual words, but he says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flame he will not quench. And so a bruised reed, by the way, a re- reed talking about like a like a plant, right? And a bruised reed is so usually reeds stand straight up and a bruised reed is like kind of bent. And so but the idea and, and then, a you know, a smoldering like a flame that's really small. That to me is like the most important thing that the Bible says. And I think every single thing that you read in the Bible should be put through the lenses of the prophet of God a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flame he will not quench. Like he will not put out a fire that's about to go out. He will not break a reed that is already bruised. Um, Like that's it. Yeah. And what you're doing right now, just to name, is that all of us have what's called a canon within a canon, C-A-N-O-N, meaning like a group of readings or a group of, of scriptures that we hold as the most sacred and the most important through which we interpret everything else. And everybody everywhere has this if you read the Bible. Like there's just, because it's, like I said, it's so big, it's so vast. Uh, we have so many different translations. I am someone who has devoted my entire life to the study and living of scripture. And uh, I cannot contain, I don't have every word of it memory. Right. And so there are things that we pull from that we find to be true and we find them to be true because they're repeated over and over. We find them to be true because of that, that three-legged school, because our reason and experience says, hey, this is true of God. God showed up on that bench day in and day out. And for me, God has shown up in the deepest and most painful moments of my life and been nothing but love and tenderness and a promise that she wouldn't leave me. And God has also very consistently told me, I'm going to take your idols away from you. That is a truth that I have experienced over and over is that the things that I want to make into God, God's like, no, you don't get to keep those. Painful, but it has always ultimately been liberating. And so when we have, we all have a canon within a canon. And I think it is not a cheap grace, nor a shallow encounter with God to know that God is first and foremost loving. Because God did not need to make human beings. God is not lonely without us. God has no lack. God is full in and of God's self. That's actually a fundamental doctrine in Judaism and in Christianity. That's the belief of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that God is God with God. God doesn't need anybody else. But God desired to make us. God loves us and God made us. And so God is not going to birth us and birth creation to just abandon it when we end up being people and not God. So I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, we had two topics, two things we were going to talk about that ideas you should get rid of and an idea you should maybe adopt. And now we've talked for the entire podcast about the first idea. So listen, the other thing we're going to talk about is purity culture and the shame that we feel around the body and sex. Here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest for time's sake that you come back to talk about that one. But let's wrap up talking about a concept that I wish more people of the Christian faith would adopt and emphasize and something I want to hold out as something you are welcome to borrow even from outside the faith. And that is the idea of Jubilee. <laughs> 
So yes. can, she, can you talk to us about Jubilee? Yes. And I will just offer that it is always a beautiful and risky thing to talk about the Old Testament as we understand it in Christianity. The Bible is understood in Judaism. So if you're really passionate about this, I encourage you to talk to a rabbi, to talk to your Jewish friends, just because this is a sacred text to lots of people. And so I, again, I'm speaking from my Christian context, but Jubilee comes from Leviticus chapter 25. And it is a command. And this is, it is a care of God that is also a commandment that every 50 years, so every seven, seven years, every 50 years, there is like a supernova Sabbath year. And so what is a Sabbath year? A Sabbath year was every seven years, God was like, take a break from the land, rest. Sabbath meaning rest, cessation of work, trust and relish and rest in God's abundance. Um, but the Jubilee year was like a, a super version of that because God promised that God would create a harvest so rich in the 49th year that it would feed people in that 49th year. In the 50th year, so much so that they did not have to plant anything. They did not have to pull any vegetables up from the ground. And the harvest would last a third year, that 51st year, so much so that as they were planting again, they could still off of the fruits of that 49th year. So that's God promised this profligate, this extravagant harvest. And and part of God's commandment with this is one, that people feast, that they eat the good foods and they feast until their bellies are full and they seek out everyone who does not have enough to eat and feed them. Another dimension of the commandment of the Jubilee year is that all debts are released. And in fact, the entire structure of being indebted to one another is meant to revolve around this concept that every 50 years, all debts are free, completely released. So you're not trying to like, you know, extort people or um, exploit them by saying, well, oh, the Jubilee year is coming up in three years. So I need to like really, you know, charge you super high interest rates right now. Like, no, God's like, don't do that. <laughs> um, and all people who are enslaved are to be set free. And so it is a year, my um, Old Testament professor, Ellen Davis, when she was teaching us about this at Duke was like, this is the most profound vision of justice that exists in scripture, because it is a reliance on God, a trusting on God as the true gardener and as the harvester, but also that God's vision for all people is to experience this freedom. And I find particularly the conversation around not only trusting God's harvest, but also this release, this freedom of debt to be something that when people say that they take the Bible literally, I'm like, please take Leviticus chapter 25 literally. <laughs> what would our world look like if every mortgage, every medical debt, if every student debt was guaranteed to be released every 50 years? I mean, it is like debt is the way that people stay in poverty. And it is because we have these machinations within our society, within capitalism that try to keep people in debt. And God says, guess what? Like debt is not actually a Christian virtue. It is not actually a godly virtue. And that's why we, you know, if you're Presbyterian or another says, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Like God is ultimately not interested in holding something over our heads to threaten us with what we owe God. God is interested in freedom. So how would you tell sort of like the average person, like what would it look like to begin to implement parts of what we learn from a Jubilee year into our lives, this idea of justice and joy? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked this question. So the whole reason my church is named Jubilee is one, because I really want us to live into this. And two, because I think it is very tempting 
And I mean this in a tempting, not in a shame way. Like it is a real temptation right now to give into cynicism and despair and to say it's just not worth it. And to say the world is terrible. It's never going to get better. I think about that with climate despair. I think about that with the political landscape right now. I think about that with the wars going on in this world. It is so understandably tempting to be like, none of this is worth it. And I think it's also understandably tempting to just think that we just have to work, 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 fight, 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 fight for justice and be super pure about pure from injustice and exhaust ourselves and never feel any joy because other people are suffering. And the deepest reality is that if we are going to pursue justice, we have to be rooted in God's joy. And so I think the ways that we can embody Jubilee in our everyday life is one, two, if you have debts from other people, consider what it would look like to release them or to live in such a way that you are not dependent on that debt. I think also if you live with a lot of debt, to know that you don't need to carry shame around that because it is God's deepest desire for you to be free and not not free in some sort of like prosperity gospel way, like you have to earn that. Like that's God's desire is for all of us to be set free. And I think the other deepest thing is that we have a prayer in the Episcopal Church that we say in the evenings, it says, keep watch dear Lord on those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous and all for your love's sake. Amen. And I love that because it's a litany of like, when we are weary, when we are afflicted, when we are suffering, when we're dying, when we're all these things that we ask God to help us with. And that's important, but it ends with shield the joyous. And I think even when we are suffering and weary or dying, it is still worth it to ask God to shield our joy, to amplify our joy. It's the most vulnerable human emotion. And to know that that is precious and good. Even when you think you're not worth it, you are. And I love the idea of marrying abundance with a passion for setting the oppressed free. That in God's eyes, those are intricately entwined and can't be separated. And I think a lot of the times there is this question of either have to feel guilty about joy that I do feel or abundance that I do have in my life, that I can't do that and work towards the freedom of the oppressed. And I love the idea that the Jubilee year is about both. It's not just about one or the other. So anyways, well, this was such a great conversation and I hope you'll come back soon so we can talk about purity culture. Where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Oh my gosh, Casey, I just adore you and I love you so much. This was such a treat. Thank you. I am uh, at rev.lizzie on TikTok and Instagram. If you want to come check out my church, Jubilee Episcopal Church, we are in the northwest corner of Austin, almost into Cedar Park. And I also do a podcast every week with my dear friend, Mother Peaches, aka Reverend Laura DePanflo, called And Also With You, where we are sort of taking like topics, deconstructing them within Christianity and then reconstructing them. So it's like kind of what we've done here. If, it, if that's helpful to you, that's what we do every week. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you have a lovely day. I hope you do too. Bye. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. 
I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.